So, you know, I used to think when I, when I went to Europe, uh, I was working in The Hague, or I've gone and participated in panels and conferences, sometimes people said to me, oh, you know, you're so lucky, you don't have the, the security for synagogues in the Jewish community over there is, I thought in a sense was kind of crazy because there aren't bars, there are security guards, machine guns. It's, it's extremely difficult to be a practicing Jew, unfortunately, in so many parts of the world. I'm Nicholas Bartlett, co-owner of the world's first popcorn board game cafe, living in Fulton, Missouri, and you're listening to the Vance Crow Podcast. Welcome back to the podcast. I'm glad you're here. Today, we sit down with attorney Isaac Amon. Isaac is an interesting person and is a member of the Jewish community right here in St. Louis. And as a kid that grew up in small town central Illinois, I knew a lot of Catholics and kids from other Protestant religions, but I never really knew anyone that was Jewish. As an adult, even though I met people from the Jewish faith and we could build friendships, there was never really an opportunity for me to ask all those questions that accumulate in your mind from knowing about people from afar, whether that's reading about them in the Bible or watching movies or hearing about them in popular culture. So I got to sit down and ask someone all these questions about their culture and traditions, and it really turned into this beautiful conversation. Quickly, after we get done discussing the different faiths, we get to talk about things like victimization and anti-Semitism going on in the U.S. I found myself being really curious about this very different perspective that is not one that I see on a day-to-day basis. And no matter where you are right now listening to this podcast, Hearing Isaac's interpretation of what's going on in the world may give you a clearer picture about the world around you. We're going to get to that in just a moment. But first, I want to talk about an experience I had doing legacy interviews last week. Two people that I interviewed said the same thing. They were in their 90s, and they got done with the interview, and they expressed that this conversation was deeply important to them. Not just because they got to talk about themselves and reflect on their lives, but because they got to share stories in context that they've always wanted to talk with their family about, but there was never an opportunity. These stories weren't necessarily bad or good. They were just the stories that make up their life and the things that need to be passed down to have a complete picture of who a person is and where they came from. That's the rare thing that comes from doing these legacy interviews. By sitting down with me, I'm a neutral third party. I get to ask questions. I get to open things up. And we have all the time we need to explore ideas in a way that creates the context so that somebody can pass down the stories, wisdom, and values that they have deep in their heart, but they don't always have a chance to talk about. If you're interested in having me sit down with your loved one to collect these stories to be passed on to the future, go to LegacyInterviews.com to find out more. Over the last few weeks, I've talked a lot about different ways to listen to the podcast, and one of those is using the Fountain app. Fountain is trying to create what they call Podcasting 2.0. Now, it doesn't really matter to me that much if you listen to us over there, but I believe that this is an important platform because I think it's going to be much harder to censor podcasts over there. Not only that, but instead of running regular ads where I take your attention and sell it to advertisers, Instead, just the very act of listening to my podcast will accumulate Satoshis, those smallest little bits of Bitcoin, and they give them to the podcast in exchange for your attention. If you'd like to check out podcasting in a whole new way, 
Download the Fountain app and just check out the Vance Crow podcast there. It shouldn't take very long for us to get high in the charts there, and that helps us spread out to a wider audience. Also, as we're talking about expanding to a wider audience, remember that writing a review about this podcast, giving us five stars, helps the algorithms to know, hey, this is something important. So if you're trying to help the podcast succeed, definitely take a little bit of time to give us a good rating, to write a comment, and to give us reviews, because these are the sorts of things that have helped us really expand the audience in the last few weeks, and it makes a big difference. All right, without further ado, we're going to head to the interview with my man, Isaac Amon. Isaac Amon, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Vance. It's great to be here. So when I was in the seventh grade, I was in my church Sunday school, and I made reference to the Jews. And my Sunday school teacher said, oh, you can't you can't call them the Jews. That's not proper. And I've carried this around with me as though like that term, somehow I was using it wrong. Is it improper to call Jewish people the Jews? It's it's a tough question because it's been used over the centuries in some sort of an attempt perhaps to to make them the other because it's always been Again, traditionally, they're the Jews, they're not us. So it could have that connotation. I think today, especially in the United States, in the Western-speaking world, um, it's okay to say Jews as opposed to Jewish people because, of course, Jews are people. And we don't say Christian people, Muslim people. We just say Muslims, Christians. Um, And so I think it's okay to say Jews. Uh, And personally, I would be okay to say the Jews. But... Just be aware that that's the historic significance that some people might feel uncomfortable with saying just the 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 Jews. Um, so if you wanted to be safe, I think you could say Jews, Christians, Muslims. That's usually how, in fact, we. It's talk gratifying about it. to me that this is not just a slam dunk, like oh yeah or oh no, that there is some sort of like thought that goes into this because I remember being like, well, I'm reading it in my Bible. It says the Jews. Right. And then, but then having that teacher, which I respect him, he was like a great guy. So he wasn't trying to do anything weird, but I growing up in small town, central Illinois, I literally did not meet a Jewish person that I was aware of until I was 18 or 19 years old. So I had no context for having this conversation. Sure, Absolutely. You know, that also speaks to just how incredibly small Jews or the Jewish people uh, really are, you know, I mean, I'm sure you've done research, but, you know, most people, right, there's 8 billion people on the planet. They do surveys, studies. How many Jews do you think there are around the world? I really don't know. Several million? I don't don't know. The answer is about 15 million. Okay. So Jews constitute 0.2%. That is really small. Of the global population. And usually, even when I ask people, you know, everyone assumes hundreds of millions or 50 million, and it's such a, like an infinitesimal amount of the global population. Then why, with such a small percentage of the population, does everybody know? I mean, there certainly must be other religions that have 15 million people. I don't know, Zoroastrians, do they have 15 million people? Uh, they have less, I would imagine, but I think, for example, um, um, a Sikhism in India, they have around the same number of adherents. Um but yeah, well, but you know, Judaism is is certainly one of the oldest religions. It goes back, depending on when we date, the emergence of it, but at least 3,000 years. Um, and it's been foundational to Western civilization. I mean, it's the, the mother religion in some sense, the progenitor of both Christianity and Islam, which are a lot of those same principles. 
and ideals from Judaism. And so through these daughter religions, if you will, Jewish ideals have been disseminated. And, and it's true, Jews have been incredibly prominent in many fields. Um, and I think that gives it the type of, you know, greater, greater publicity, greater prominence to a people that, again, is, is so incredibly small in terms of uh, numbers. Yeah, you know, I think about um, when I, so I lived with a guy from Afghanistan, Muslim, I knew a lot of Muslims, and they always talked about Christianity, Judaism, and Islam are all Abrahamic religions. Right. But I guess until you said this just now, I didn't think of the Muslims as having come from Islam, but that is essentially like the progenitor religion, yeah? Well, it, Muslims are adherents of the religion of Islam. Right. Right, right, right. Just like Jews, Judaism, Christians. Yeah, because Christianity. Christianity, like we have our Old Testament and New right. Testament. Well, so they have a different book, a different religious book called, right, the Quran. But many of the stories are the same. There's some differences, but by and large, there's many similar accounts. And the founder, the prophet Muhammad, who, who, who according to Islamic tradition, you know, received the revelation from, from God, from Allah, you know, he lived in Arabia right, which is today Saudi Arabia, but at the time it was just Arabia, and there were Jews and Christians who lived there. Um, uh, when he was growing up, he was influenced by them, by, by ideas, and um, he actually, um, you know, when he, when he formed a society uh, in, in Mecca and, and in Medina, those two holy cities in Islam, he included Jews and Christians as part of the community. Um, not to say he didn't fight them, Obviously, he did. Um, in some cases, it didn't end too well for the for Jews, the Jews. In that case, these Jewish tribes. But nonetheless, you know, the three faiths, as you said, the Abrahamic faiths, Judaism, Christianity, and Islam have a very long history, and, and it's completely interconnected. So we should maybe go back to square one, which is, you know, you're a guy that I just started asking questions about, you know, being Jewish and what this means. But, like, <laughs> who, who are you, and why are you connected with the Jewish faith here in St. Louis? Well, <laughs> I'm connected with Jewish faith because I'm, of course, I'm, I'm born Jewish. Um, I, I, I was born in Memphis, but I've been in St. Louis since I was a kid. My mom's family is, is from here. So, and this actually goes into something I'm sure we'd want to talk about maybe a little later, but just to kind of set the groundwork. So there's at least two different types of Jews um, in terms of origin of, of country, of, of ethnicity, which gives rise to difference in customs. So there's the Ashkenazi Jews, which are the by far the the, the dominant number, um, and these are Jews who come from Germany, Poland, Eastern Europe. So most people, when they think Jews, they think coming from that part of the world. And again, by sheer numbers, it's true. But there then there are the Sephardi Jews who really come from Spain and Portugal, the Iberian Peninsula, and we can again get into it later. But they were expelled um, and forcibly converted. And it created basically a global diaspora. And these Jews, these Sephardic Jews, went everywhere to North Africa, to the Ottoman Empire, to Turkey, Greece, Lebanon, Syria, Iraq. And it kind of created, in a sense, two different, again, type of cultural communities. Obviously, both Jews, both having the Torah, the Old Testament, and the foundations are the same, but customs and, and culture are a bit different, languages are different. And the reason it's relevant to me is because my mom's side is the Ashkenazi Jewish family that actually came to Ellis Island in November 1922 from Ukraine. 
Um, and uh, that was my, my grandmother on my mom's side. Um, and then my grandfather on that side was, was born here in St. Louis, but his grandparents or his parents were from uh, Lithuania and Belarus and actually fled, you know, the, the persecutory, persecutory laws of the czars and pogroms against Jews uh, in the Russian Empire. And on my dad's side, my dad was actually born in Istanbul, Turkey. And his parents were from Istanbul and from Aleppo, Syria. But my grandmother on that side grew up in Beirut, Lebanon, when it was the Paris of the Middle East in the 1940s. And so my grandfather, for whom I'm named on that side, spoke seven languages, was a professor of engineering. They moved, my grandparents moved from Istanbul to Chicago in the 50s. And so, and my grandmother spoke five languages and worked at the Marshall Field Store on State Street in Chicago for 40 years as a fashionista. So I had this upbringing where I had grandparents from completely different worlds in some sense. So again, my, my Sephardic grandparents had this completely different background than my maternal Ashkenazi grandparents. Um, but it's an exceptionally enriching synthesis. And there's this massive history behind each of these traditions. In a sense, <laughs> I got the best of both. I mean, it's so fascinating because, you know, in Christianity, I'm well aware, I grew up Catholic, that, you know, there's Catholics and there's Protestants, and these are two different forms. Would But I never even heard that there were two different forms of Judaism. To me, it was just one large thing. Would you make that comparison between Protestant and Catholicism or or no? It, it, it's It's similar, perhaps, to think about it in that way, but... I'd say it's actually not the case because my understanding is Catholicism and Protestantism have some theological differences. Yeah, fundamental theological. Fundamental yeah. theological. Yeah. So, so there's not a fundamental theological difference between Sephardic Jews and Ashkenazic Jews. It's more of cultural uh, you know, values and, for example, cuisine, language. So my, my one grandfather from St. Louis, who you know, was in the American Army in World War II and, and encountered anti-Semitism there, you know, he spoke Yiddish, of course. Uh, but my other grandfather from Turkey, those Jews don't speak Yiddish. They speak another language called Ladino, which is a medieval Spanish that's kind of been mixed with, you know, Greek, Turkish, French, other languages that these Jews encountered throughout the Mediterranean when they were expelled uh, from Spain and uh, later Portugal in the late 15th, early 16th century. So um, so the point is it's, it's different in cuisine and maybe outlook, different, some religious you know, uh, customs might differ. For example, the big difference we, we always joke about is on Passover, you know, Jews don't eat leavened bread. Uh, traditionally, right? The Bible says you have to remember the Exodus going out of Egypt the last seven or eight days. Um, and you're not supposed to, again, have these leavened bread or wheat, you know, uh, oat, barley, spelt. And the question arose hundreds of years ago is rice. Rice is, of course, is that in that prohibition? Well, obviously it's not wheat, it's a distinct substance, but it looks like a grain of, you know, it could look and be mistaken for a grain of wheat. And so, you know, a big difference was, should you kind of have a fence put up and say, let's not have rice just to be safe that we don't consume leaven on Passover. And Ashkenazi Jews ended up saying, we're not gonna have rice. And the Sephardic Jews said, but that's such a staple of our diet, such an important, you know, part of our identity that they do have it. And it endures to this day. Ashkenazi Jews don't have rice. Sephardi Jews do. <laughs> <laughs> wow. I, I, like the cuisine things, you think like, oh, what a small uh, decision like that or would, would make. But stack it over a few hundred or even a few thousand years, 
it really stacks up to entirely different ways of life because you've got to grow it. You've got to right. in, incorporate it. You've got to make it, you know, bread, for example. I actually just got back from Canada. I gave a talk on, uh, I said, a conflict older than bread. And it was basically saying the rural-urban divide happened around the fact that once people figured out that you could create bread by adding yeast to this wheat right. porridge, now you could have people specialize so they could build ovens and these ovens would make it so now you can store calories for longer periods of time and then all these things stacking up to it. And I didn't realize until you were just talking because one of the things I point out in the talk is that the Egyptians actually have hieroglyphics at the tallest part of the pyramids inside of the of the king's tome, the pharaoh's tome, of them with tables of bread. That this was like the highest order thing that you could have at the time. And as you're describing the rice concept of diverging, like food is, culture is, the people is perception. Exactly. It's also memory. You know, um, someone I once I once met, uh, she, she, she has a saying, something like, you know, when you, when you have nothing else, you eat in order to remember. And I think that's a great way to express it because food, art, um, you know, um, literature, the means of expressing ourselves. Again, it's all an attempt to remember this history. Yeah. Tell me more. I mean, as, as you're saying this, I'm like, is that true for my people? And I'm thinking, well, yes, I brought a birthday cake home to my wife. Really, the only thing we did was celebrate, you know, her birthday by like you knew it was her birthday because there was a cake on the table. Right. So tell me, like, where does food and memory play out in your world? Well, certainly it's key in the in the Jewish speaking world, uh, in, in the Jewish world. Um, I mean, you know, the, there's a running gag you might be familiar with. And, you know, Jews are very prone to humor and <laughs> And anyway, we, we tend to say that almost all our holidays have, you know, we recount what happens. So there's that recall of memory. We thank God we were saved from destruction. And then we eat. <laughs> so, so obviously food's very integral to, to that story. Um, and I think, you know, in some of the work also that I do, um, and I talk about Jewish history, but really this, I focus much more on Sephardic history because it's certainly undertold under you know, yeah I didn't unknown. even know I didn't even know the word existed before yeah, you and so, I were to talk <laughs> so so for that so that's what a lot of the work I do in, in terms of promoting and, and trying to preserve it and uh yeah so food figures very prominently in in, in, in these stories and uh I'll give you an example I just gave a talk in New York in November um on kind of on this history on my family story on my grandparents and after I spoke they had uh some singers who who came who who did the songs in Ladino, which is again that Judeo-Spanish, so it's not Yiddish, but you can think of it as kind of the Sephardic equivalent to Yiddish, right? And they sang these songs, which again are very meaningful for people from Turkey, from Greece, from Balkans, and from the, the it, because again, it's, it's it's a testament to that long-standing Jewish presence in, in those countries. And um, and afterwards, they made uh, so, there was an there was an Israeli chef, and he made kibbeh. So food and music very much go together and, in fact, symbolize narrative for storytelling. Yeah, I think the just the very act of the dinners that, that happen, I believe it's over Passover, right, where children are reading parts of this whole thing, creates 
just like they say that the Catholic, you know, there's a Catholic mass going on 24 hours a day and you could, you could at any time of day, like that creates some kind of connectivity, connective tissue all the way through. The fact that you guys have these traditions around your food makes it so you can interchange people and yet they are still connected with this larger fabric. Exactly. I mean, Passover is perhaps the paradigmatic example because we have what's called the Seder, which is the order, you know, of different steps. Everything's ritualized. Every every food represents something that happened to our ancestors in Egypt, according to the Bible, right? And uh, and as you said, kids are encouraged to play a very prominent role in the process. And uh, in fact, it's a tradition um, that goes back many many centuries. I'm sure that the youngest child present is supposed to ask, why is this night different than all other nights? And it's at that point that, you know, the head of the household is supposed to take the matzah, right, the unleavened, or the unleavened bread, and to say, this is the bread of affliction, our ancestors ate in Egypt, and then you go into telling the story of the exodus from Egypt. But again, the, the, the child plays an incredibly important role in telling the story and actually initiating the, the storytelling that will lead to the or, or initiate the questioning that will lead to the story being told. I mean, like, it's really striking me, like the, the bread being important in your culture and like in, in Christianity, right. Or at least in Catholicism, yeah. it's and, the bread of life. And, you know, and on Friday night when the Jewish Sabbath begins, which it's, it, we usher in the day in Judaism begins at sundown. And it lasts, um, uh, you know, until the, the following evening. So the Sabbath, the Shabbat, starts Friday night, goes until Saturday night. Um, so it's about 24, 25 hours. Um, but, you know, when we usher in the Sabbath, it's done through, <laughs> not surprisingly, uh, perhaps, uh, with, with wine and bread. You have the wine to sanctify the, 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 the Sabbath. You welcome, the, you know, the Sabbath queen, so to speak, coming in, gracing us with her presence. And then you have bread to to begin the the meal i think this is i want you to tell me more about this i've never heard the idea of the sabbath queen that's a new concept to me but the thing that i'm really fascinated with this is that by doing this tradition in this way where you're describing it takes 25 hours the time alone is something that would bind you together the the yeah. the act of doing it all at the exact same time this is fascinating. And, and not only that, but in Orthodox Judaism, so, you know, the more traditional denomination, if you will, uh, not saying you can't do it if you don't abide by those rules, but there is a restriction on, you know, um, electronics, on, on driving, um, so watching TV, being on your phone, you can't do it. So the entire day is going, you know, having the meal with friends, family, with going to the synagogue, prayers reading a weekly portion from the bible from the torah and that entire day again is free of any outside distraction is free of anyone calling you you're kind of in your own world for this 25 hours where it's just you kind of reconnecting with god with each other and um you know and and i guess with yourself yeah to me one of the biggest things that is going on in society is you look around and you say there's so many people suffering from anxiety disorders and depression and I think it is a matter of humans being so disconnected from time, right? Like we have electronic lights, so you can take the day and extend it all the way till 10 o'clock at night. You're completely separated from the climate, right? The changing worlds, because if you wake up in a warm house, you go to a warm car, you go to a warm office, you're not experiencing the seasons. And I don't think the human mind, you know, in the last 
70, 80 years was able to keep up with the fact that you're just able to accelerate time in that way. But this tradition that you have would give it, would at least slow you down one seventh of the time. Yeah, no, it's, it's, it's absolutely necessary, I think. And, you know, everyone talks now about taking time off and, and, you know, the concept of a weekend, if it exists, <laughs> I know some people don't have one or uh, kind of joking, they work all the time. But I mean, honestly, if you don't take time off to, to recharge your batteries, it's not sustainable. I think in any, in any line of work that you do, you have to have some time to be with your friends and family away from. Yeah. And when I grew up as a kid, there were two times. So Wednesday night was when they did CCD. That was when, and I'm sure there are people listening right now to this podcast. They're like, oh yeah. Wednesday night was when we went and did, it was not Sunday school, but it was like Sunday school on Wednesday night. Mm -hmm. And then Sunday itself, if you had a basketball game or a soccer game and you went to it instead of church, that was considered like blasphemy, right? Now it's not that way. And people have like, five days of work and then you've got two days of kids sports yeah. and it's just a, you know, a constant cycle, like where, where people don't take that break. It's tough. It's, I think it's increasingly challenging in the modern world for, for, for sure. I mean, you know, the problem with technology in some sense is that as it becomes ever easier to connect with one another, which is great and transcend boundaries and borders and instantaneously talk to people on the other side of the globe. On the other hand, where does that leave time for yourself? And, you're expected to be on call 24 hours a day. You know, you can't just, you know, say I'm leaving the office at five o'clock, six o'clock, and I'll get back to you in the morning. Yeah, but a religious edict in some ways frees you from these things, right? It's a yeah. little bit like, hey, I, I, you know, it's not a choice I'm making each weekend, whether or not I'm going to unplug. It has already been made. There's a right. deep value in that. And I think even, even for people who aren't as, um, uh, I don't know, religious or even aren't as observant in a sense of that, of the, of the, of the edict, as you said, you know, I think, I think a lot of uh, people, a lot of Jews uh, are cognizant of the um, importance of having this Shabbat of honoring, even if you drive to synagogue, at least you're going, you recognize that what the day means, you go with your family and friends. There is a certain gravitas to the day for sure. So you mentioned the queen Sabbath. This is like, what, what, what is that? Well, it's just a, the Sabbath queen, and it's just a, a, a type of mystical tradition that because the Sabbath, the, that Friday night to Saturday night is, you know, it's holier than the other days of the week. It's more special, right, as we've been talking about. And so there's a certain sense of holiness that permeates the day when, again, you're in synagogue, when you're with your family and friends at home, and you're sharing meals together. And so the idea is, is that when you, when you have the, you know, the meal in the evening, and some people go to synagogue, of course, in the evening on Friday. You you kind of say, welcome, Sabbath queen. You know, again, it's 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 an illusion. It's a metaphor of sorts. Uh, but the idea is that you recognize something's changed. It's the important, you know, spirit in, in a way has arrived. And now it's Shabbat. Now it's Sabbath. Something's fundamentally different than the other days of the week. And so we we kind of call that the Sabbath queen, again, to to recognize that there's some something more spiritual on that day. So when you think about the, you know, one of the biggest differences, I don't know that much about Protestantism. It's just like not Catholicism, right? So I kind of know, and I've had friends over the years, but it's not like we sit down and talk about theological differences. But one of the major differences between Judaism and Catholicism, for example, is uh, the concept of confession, right? So 
people feel like I've sinned and uh, I've either sinned in these mortal ways or these small ways. But before I can go have bread with everybody else, the Eucharist, I go to a priest. I don't actually do this, but Catholics do this. I, I would sit across from a priest and I would tell them my sins. And then that priest would say, these are absolved and this is your penance. How do the Jewish people handle the concepts of I've made some violation against God or my fellow man, and I need to alleviate this thing. Because to me, the Catholics figured something really important out is that like, you can't live with this guilt. You can't live with these problems. And even if the priest isn't actually doing anything, um, the act of saying it out loud has some real power um, in letting you move past it. So, that's a, that's a great point, and I think that Judaism does agree with that. Now, confession is not made to another person. That's a big difference. So we're encouraged to confess all the time. Some people even, you know, they say, I, I, I haven't done this <laughs> myself. I, I Sometimes I think I should, in a sense. Maybe maybe it, it really is uh, cathartic, you know, for your soul, for yourself, that they actually confess, you know, before bed, every night, to God. Um, but probably the most significant date uh, on the on the Jewish calendar, as you might know, is Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. No, I don't, you don't know, know this. Okay. Yeah. So probably the two most significant holidays are there's Rosh Hashanah, which is the Jewish New Year. And then 10 days later, there's Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. And so you have these 10 days from, you basically have a new year, and Judaism holds that God, in a sense, is judging each and every person, every animal, every nation. What is going to be the fate for the following year? You have 10 days to confess to God. There are, are, are a lot of different prayers that are said collectively. So we actually confess together, but not to each other, to God alone. Um, for the sins, of course, committed against, against God. Now, in terms of against fellow man, uh, Jewish tradition actually holds God doesn't forgive those sins unless the other person forgives you first. Really? Yeah. So you can't just say, you know, I've done these horrible things to other people and I'm just going to go confess to God and everything's good. No, no, no. You have to go ask for their forgiveness first. It would seem that that would give man a lot of power over his fellow men because you could say, I'm not going to forgive That's you. true. And so <laughs> the, 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 I don't know, the rule that tradition establishes if you genuinely ask for forgiveness up to three times the other person's supposed to forgive you. And at that point, you've experienced as much contrition, you know, as you can, as you've done. Again, really genuine. Yeah, and in truth, if you were a person that that looked past three genuine apologies, you would be carrying a burden in and of yourself right. that's probably not that different from the sin itself. Yeah, yeah, in some sense. And so at, at, that, at that point, then, you know, you go back to synagogue, especially in this Yom Kippur, Day of Atonement, which, which is a fast day, by the way, so no food, no water for the 25 hours. And, you know, Jewish people around the world are in synagogues. Um, you know, um, it's one of the most observed days of the year. And at that point, we believe also that the decree from on high, right, from the, the heavenly decree, in a sense, is actually sealed. So there's that sense of your very life, in a, you know, is on the line. And, and our fates for the coming year, for all of us, and if you didn't do that, it would be a bad time to die. Then you you're like taking some 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 chance then in in a way. Yeah, I mean you're you're taking a chance. That's true. But I think also 
you know, if you didn't go through that process, uh, again, of confession, of asking for forgiveness from God and your fellow man, and, you know, a lot of people give charity, you know, in hopes of having a, it's not a bribe, of course, but but you give a charity to a good cause and it's hope of having a better, you know, decree or, or tearing up evil decrees that might have been issued, you know, again, uh, in some heavenly way against you. Um, it's all designed, I think, to draw you closer to God and, and to the community, you know, writ large. So as a person that has come from two different diasporas and also is focused on things like criminal tribunals and are involved with the Holocaust Museum, you certainly must have a view on why is it that the Jews were targeted or have been targeted over and over and over again relative to other other faiths or other groups? I mean, it's still a very difficult question. It's perhaps one of the most unanswerable ones. I don't think there's any one answer that 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 is satisfactory. I mean, what we know is that anti-Semitism is probably the world's oldest hatred. It goes back to the very beginning um, in almost every society, every culture. Um, and what I can at least say is that it seems that persecution of Jews is usually a harbinger of worse things to come. In some sense, Jews are like the canary in the coal mine, that anti-Semitism usually leads to worse persecution. Of other people of outside other people of people too, but Jews, Jews are conspicuous have been very prominent and for many, you know, centuries, especially say in Western Europe and Christendom, right? In, in the Middle Ages, Jews were the only minority, right? So it's so easy to define. Oh, that's super interesting that like in Germany, for example, everybody would have been Christian, right? Except for the Jews and there weren't black people or Hispanics or, or right, right. Fascinating. And also, you know, it must be acknowledged that for a long time, although the Catholic church, you know, famously in the Second Vatican Council or Vatican II in the 1960s, you know, absolved all Jews of, of, of you know, forever being guilty of the, the crucifixion of Jesus. But that, you know, the church unfortunately played that up for centuries. And it's not surprising that that image of the, the Jew, in some sense being guilty of deicide, of, of killing Jesus, um, it also stirred up, you know, popular resentment. It was always in the background. In, in, in Christian countries. And it wasn't easy. It, it was, it, let me put it this way. On one hand, you know, the church has said for a long time, I think really the, the teachings of St. Augustine, that the Jew must be around. The Jew has to bear witness that, you know, we're the eternal observers in some sense. So we have to be, we can't be fully <laughs> eliminated or annihilated. On the other hand, though, that doesn't mean you can't restrict and punish and persecute. And so I think the church for a long time was caught between these two opposite poles. Because um, on one hand, it's encouraging the Jews are always responsible for the death of Jesus. On the other hand, we need them to be around. And like I said, though, it's not surprising that after centuries of inculcating this type of thinking in the masses, you know, unfortunately, Jews are always been the scapegoat. There's something really important about d describing this because I grew up after Vatican II, obviously. Yeah. So my only understanding of the Jews is like, oh no, we you have to protect them. They are, you know, the God's first people. That's where we come from. So there was no concept that like, oh, the Jews killed Jesus. It was like those olden people did it, right? But, but not now. But if you lose that to history, if you lose that context that it that 
that this used to be the way the Catholics were, the way that the Protestants right. were, then it's a it's a memory that it means you could repeat your same mistakes again if you don't remember it. Of course, you know, and there are some I understand some Catholics, you know, who reject the reforms of, of Vatican II oh, yeah. as well. They know they don't accept the legitimacy um of that. But 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 you're absolutely right. You know, but that's why Vatican II was so revolutionary, because for a long time, even I again, not that I'm Catholic, but I've read quite a bit <laughs> into into this. And, you know, they even had on Good Friday prayers, there were the famous we pray for the um the perfidious Jews. They might see the light. And that was only abolished in the nineteen sixties. Okay. Yeah, yeah I was like, II. that's not any right. part of a prayer I've but ever again, heard. And that's why Vatican II is so uh, such a foundational event in the history of Jewish Christian relations. Which actually explains uh, one of your areas of expertise, the Sephardic Jews, which are, I didn't realize until I started looking it up on Wikipedia, right? So those Jews have been in the Iberian Peninsula, Spain, Portugal, since they believe the time of Solomon. Like, this yeah. is really ancient. I didn't even realize, I mean, people were in Europe, let alone that the Jews were in Europe, let alone that then they were there for so long that in the 1500s, when the Catholics said, you have three options, convert, uh, be expelled, or die, essentially. Yeah. And that's the the diaspora that you, I guess, represent or try and make sure this, the, the story is not lost to history? Yeah, yeah, that's that's right. Um, you know, as far as we know, they, they may have been around. It's speculation. By the way, there's not concrete, you know, definitive proof that Jews were around. But what we do know, and the reason it's speculated, uh, back to at least King Solomon, is... You know, from the Bible alone, it tells us that King Solomon and uh, King Hiram of Tyre, who was in what is now modern-day Lebanon, were actually very close allies and friends. In fact, uh, one of the books of the Bible, I believe it's Second Kings, says that Hiram actually sent cedar trees. Well, yes. Right, to 100%. help build the temple. Yes. And Phoenicia at the time was a great maritime power in the Mediterranean. So they're establishing settlements and trading centers all throughout the Mediterranean basin, North Africa, uh, Italy, Greece, Portugal, Spain. And so it stands to reason because these, you know, kingdoms were adjacent to one another, right? And because of the very close alliance, there were Jewish sailors who perhaps joined their Phoenician, you know, uh, counterparts and journeyed with them and wound up in these places as early as King Solomon. But for sure, the presence of Jewish communities is dated to at least 2,000 years ago. When I, my very simple reading of um, anti-Semitism was that the Christians had edicts against loaning money and the Islamic way of loaning money is really complicated. It's, it's, uh, you can't loan out large sums, the amount that has to be forgiven and how quickly it could go. And so the Jewish faith was, this is what was told to me. I'm, I don't hold the, I'm, I'm open to being wrong about this but that the Jewish faith didn't have the same rules against usury or loaning out money. And that when people end up becoming indebted to another group of people because of their banking rules, then it's very easy to hate them. Is this something that, have you heard this before? Yes. Now, you know, I, I don't think the Judaism doesn't prohibit usury. Uh, I think against um, necessarily non-Jews, but I think uh, it's, it is frowned upon. But it's not an outright prohibition. But I think in many cases, you know, Jews were restricted from so many occupations and professions. They had no choice but to become the money lenders, to become the tax collectors. You're right. It's not a job that endears you to people. 
Um, but in many cases, you know, they're the king's Jews. That's what they were called a lot of times because they were collecting on behalf of the royal treasury. But of course, when there's an outburst and there's anger, resentment, well, you know, that image of the Jew as, you know, associated with money and greed, a lot of it does come from that. And it's unfortunately not true. They, again, were forced into these types of positions or maybe being, you know, peddlers or things like that because, and, and doctors, to be fair, that, you know, the Jews have had a long history of medicine, but so many other things were denied to them. And, and they had no choice but to take on those roles. And I guess in some way they also felt that being, you know, associated with the king would give them a degree of protection. Um, you know, sometimes it worked, sometimes it didn't. Yeah, and if you're a minority, finding those things out well before and figuring out what job you can do to be useful in a community is very valuable because uh, people don't like the other. For sure. But, you know, I think utility can only take you so far because, you know, in the course of my research and work on, on Sephirah, the Iberian Peninsula, you know, Jews were very useful. I mean, economically, socially, politically to the state. And nonetheless, it didn't stop the expulsion on mass of tens to hundreds of thousands of people who had been there for, you know, 1500 years. And, you know, we still don't know exactly why, I mean, if you read the Edict of Expulsion from Ferdinand and Isabella, who are, who, are the, who are the Catholic monarchs, the ones who completed that Reconquista, the Reconquest of Spain from the Muslims, you know, it's, it's actually given as kind of framed in a religious sense that, you know, it's our obligation to make Spain, right, one kingdom, one faith. And so the Jews have to go uh, because at this point we got, you know, they were useful to us to finish the war against Muslims, right? But now we're all unified. We don't need them anymore. And, you know, and of course, when they're expelled, then, you know, their property is confiscated, too. So, oh, there you go. Yeah. <laughs> and that's always like a convenient uh, little side thing that happens in, in all kinds of war situations. Exactly. One of the things that struck me in doing research before this conversation was I kind of had this perception that um, um, Christians and Jews were much closer aligned than Jews and Muslims. But you find out in the Iberian Peninsula that when it was the Muslims overseeing that peninsula, they got along with the Jews quite well, that the Jews were allowed to own property. They weren't expelled. They were a part of the community. This was really surprising to me, largely because it like it went against the story about like, we're the good guys. We've always been the good guys and we'll always be the good guys. I mean, it's true. I mean, Jews have, you know, fared you know, well at times under Christians and, and well at times under Muslims and sometimes ill under both. It's, it's not just because they're Christian or Muslim. I will say, however, that perhaps one reason there may have been better relations, at least historically speaking, is you know, we talked about Christianity has long had that crime of deicide against Jews. Muslims, of course, don't have that. They never permeated their Oh, their that's right, because now. you didn't kill their, their savior, <laughs> I see. Yeah. Right, so, so Jews were never... You know, accused of that, and that never permeated the consciousness. Not to say they were not restricted or limited; they were. But I think it's a lot easier to overcome and, and 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 to perhaps make contributions in a society where that's not, you know, where the the, the, the spiritual authority is not, you know, urging that. Now, again, not just there are many bishops, many prelates, many people who who supported Jews, you know, across the ages. It's not always been that way. But again, from like a macro perspective, there's this been this long line of um, thinking and, and, and promulgating this, this, this idea that's just absent in Islam. You mentioned about the, 
Jewish people being persecuted is a canary in the coal mine. In popular media right now, I hear that anti-Semitism is running wild. I don't know anyone that has anti-Semitic thoughts that they share with me. So I find myself being in this weird tension of being like, if there really is a whole bunch of hate out there, I don't want that. That does, that seems like a bad thing, right? I, and But if there, if like you, you also don't want to go chasing after something that is like, people are saying there's all these people out there that are bad that hate these people. We need to go stop them because then you start chasing after ghosts. What is your perception? Is is there anti-Semitism on the rise? And where could one see that to better understand what's being talked about right now? I mean, I think even if we look at the numbers, for example, the FBI that tracks hate crimes, right? Jews constitute, again, 0.2% of the global population. But even in the United States, I think Jews are about 2%. And, of hate crimes? Uh, 2% of the American population. Oh, okay. They constitute okay. 60% of religious hate crimes. Wow. In the United States. Okay. Which is, an again, amazing country. and It's founded on religious liberty and, you know, inclusivity. Uh, obviously, they're, they're <laughs> not to say that you know, there, there are sins that even the United States, unfortunately, made. And we're working to, through this process, of course, such, you know, with, with slavery. But but um, but even today, you know, it's not like anti-Semitism is absent, absent. I mean, the other day you might have heard there was a Molotov cocktail hurled at a synagogue in New Jersey. No, I didn't hear this. You at know, all. Um, yeah, it's, you know, thankfully, I haven't personally experienced it, really. Um, you know, St. Louis is great. Um, I haven't. Really, although I will say, I will say, although it's not clear, you know, if it was intentional or not. But if you remember, even a few years ago, five, five years ago, six years, six years ago, the one of the Jewish cemeteries here in St. Louis was vandalized. Yeah, that's right. But a hundred gravestones were toppled, including including my mother's grandmother. That was one of the stones toppled over. So, it, unfortunately, it does happen, you know, even in the United States. Now, thankfully, again, I think it's it's rare in a sense, especially vis a vis other countries, but. You know, there was the the shooting in Pittsburgh at the, the Tree of Life Synagogue in 2018 that killed yeah, 11 yeah, people. That's right. Yeah. Shabbat. There was a shooting at a synagogue in Poway, California, by San Diego that on Passover that killed one parishioner there, injured the rabbi. You know, and and if you might remember, just a year ago, the rabbi in the synagogue in Texas was held hostage, that went viral because it was Facebook Live streaming. So you know, I used to think when I when I went to Europe uh, and I was working in the Hague. Or I've gone and participated in panels and conferences. And sometimes people said to me, oh, you know, you're so lucky. You don't experience the, the security for synagogues in the Jewish community over there is, I thought, in a sense, was kind of crazy because there are iron bars, there are security guards with machine guns. It's, it's extremely difficult to be a practicing Jew, unfortunately, in so many parts of the world. And here, you know, it's taken for granted. You can walk into a synagogue. We don't have guards. And unfortunately, for many Jewish communities in the United States, that's changing. I mean, to hear you say this is um, is very good for me because I'm like, ah, you know, I think I heard something on the news, you know, once or twice. But if you're living in that existence, right, it's much easier to forget things that happen to other people than if you're like, no, I mean, like that was a if, if it were happening in Catholic churches in rural America, I would be like, whoa, no, our people are being persecuted. Right. I, this, this is good. I mean, and and frankly, several of the things that you mentioned, like. I vaguely kind of maybe remember these things, but not really. Whereas for you, you're like, bing, 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 bing. 
Yeah. Well, yeah, I think it's for everyone. You know, we only, we have selective memory, selective recall. It's not an indictment of you or I think anyone else. It's just, there's so many things going on in the world. And it seems like, unfortunately, there's shootings all the time and, and there are killings and, 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 and crimes and, you know, how much can the brain process? But of course, you're right. Living in a Jewish community and being a part of it, it it's obviously incredibly important to my, to my own identity. And uh, it's something, of course, I, I try to, you know, know more about. And, you know, attacks on synagogues anywhere are problematic. But being, you know, a proud American, it's like something strikes at my at my gut, at my, or my, my, my heart, my soul, because, you know, how could it happen in the United States of America? Again, that's, that's dedicated to the promise, you know, of liberty and justice for all. And, and, you know, Jews have been so integral even to the founding of the Republic, um, you know, several of the founders and, and all the procedural protections. Wait, tell me more about this. Well, <laughs> you know, there were Sephardic Jews who arrived, you know, earlier on, um, to the eastern seaboard of the United States. They, so a lot of them, you know, the Inquisition, and, you know, there was one in Spain, one in Portugal. They're established in the late 1400s, early 1500s. They last until the 1800s. I mean, we're talking over, you know, three centuries of a global persecution. So even when Jews leave, they're not free of, you know, over, you know, looking over their shoulder. And really it's, um, to, to, kind of uh, clarify, it's not open Jews that they're going after, but the Jews who are forcibly converted to Catholicism, they're, even then they're kind of distinguished as the other because they're known as new Christians. Forever. Forever. They and all their descendants are referred to by this term. Doesn't matter how many generations pass since the baptism, they are regarded as new Christians. And so a lot of the restrictions that were placed on Jews, you would think, okay, we're, they're converted, they're not Jews anymore. They can, you know, rise to any position in society. Well, a lot of the new Christians start taking over positions that they held or their ancestors held as Jews. They say, you know what? Now Jewishness is not, it's not a faith. It's, it's something in, in, in your biology. It's something that the baptism can't remove. And so these new Christians are persecuted and investigated by the Inquisition. And, and many of them are burnt alive in, 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 in um, what's called an auto de fe or, or an act of faith. And this is not just in Spain and Portugal, but throughout the global Spanish and Portuguese empires. I mean, we're talking in uh, Brazil and Mexico. We're talking in, um, in India. We're talking in, in Africa. The Inquisitions went around the world. And so when the founders of the United States, George Washington, Thomas Jefferson, Benjamin Franklin, were, were drafting the Constitution, the Inquisition still existed. It's, these are totally separate concepts to me. Well, it's I'm saying I'm glad. I'm, I'm glad yeah. your perspective is here. I'm just saying you're <laughs> the first person to ever merge these two ideas together in my mind. Yeah. Well, you know, I, I try to always, when I look at timelines, I try to see things happening in parallel with one another. You know, sometimes timelines are laid out so neatly for us and we don't tend to think of like, wow, this person existed at the same time as this person or this society was around at the same time as, you know, as this one. But, uh, you know, it, but it's it for me even it was like an amazing kind of you know really tragic discovery to make that you know we're drafting the constitution in 1787 and the constitution's ratified in 1788 and the bill of rights come in 1791 and these inquisitions are still around now they had been shorn of a lot of their power 
you know, it was process of enlightenment and reform, uh, criminal justice reform, even for that time. But the point is, it still existed, and and there were still new Christians who were who were being persecuted, and others, Protestants and free thinkers and uh, dissidents. Um, um, but there again, by the way, you see that Jews, in one way or another, as new Christians, are the canary in the coal mine. The Inquisition didn't stop with their persecution; it went on to other groups that were deemed to be subversive in some way to the state, and so when a lot of these Jews or these new Christians had fled the Iberian Peninsula, they came to the New World, they settled in Brazil, in the Caribbean, Mexico, and there were some who ended up in North America, in New York, even when it was a Dutch colony known as New Amsterdam. And in fact, Peter Stuyvesant, who was the director general or the governor, oh yeah, he attempted to block the admission of 23 Jews fleeing the Portuguese Inquisition. And he said, they're, they're Christ killers, we don't want them here. They're going to, you know, pollute the, the, the colony. Even then, it's the same tropes being made by him. And it's not just anti-Semitic. He was, you know, I think, a pretty devout Calvinist, and he didn't like Catholics either, papists, as he called them. And he says, if we allow Jews, then we have to allow all these religious minorities in. <laughs> but again, Jews are this somehow the canary in the coal mine. But, you know, he was overruled by the Dutch West India Company, which controlled the colony. They created a synagogue, which endures to this day. The congregation still exists, so it's, almost 360, 370 years old. And then they went elsewhere in Philadelphia, Charleston, South Carolina, Savannah, Georgia, and they established synagogues. And, and, and uh, these other synagogues or congregations, again, they endure to this day from the 1700s. And there's something fascinating about being able to endure, right? Like my, uh, my own family, like our name endures as, as, you know, half, right? Your mother's name doesn't, you know, it goes on, but not, I don't think we think of ourselves as a people amongst, even among Catholics, right? Like we're Catholics, but we're all our own, you know, family. And, and if you met another Catholic, you might be like, oh, we believe the same way, but we don't think of ourselves as like a people. You know, it's interesting. And I think that goes to how do we even define Judaism or, 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 or Jews? Because it's, it's a faith in a sense, of course, but on the other hand, it's a type of nation. I tend to think of it, if you look at the Bible, it looks like, you know, we were a family, according to, according to the Old Testament, the Hebrew Bible. You know, Jews are the, the ancestors of the Jews, the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and, and their families. It was one family, right? So it was a people, in a sense, before it became a faith. I mean, even, you know, the Bible tells us in the book of Exodus about the revelation of Mount Sinai, when God gave the Ten Commandments and, and to, to, to the Jewish people there. So even then, it's a sense there's a nation-building process going on but and they were persecuted there too right yes, like they were all persecuted the way in egypt yes yeah. in fact <laughs> that might very well be the first documented instance of anti-semitism because um i don't know how, how well you know your bible but, pretty well uh, <laughs> so so going to that so what happened right jacob's family in in in, in uh, canaan they go to egypt because there's a famine right and they get there and they settle in the land of Goshen because Joseph, the brother, the brothers had tried. Yeah, that is, the, he was thrown in the pit. And right. They gave and what him happened away. to Joseph? Yeah. Well, then they gave him into the, to the Pharaoh and he became relatively important because he right. had dreams and exactly. he could see the future. Right. So he became the vizier, the grand vizier, the Oh, you're right. The special person underneath second, the king. Second to the king. Wow. So when his family comes to Egypt looking for grain, um, he's in a position, right? And he saves Egypt from famine, according to the Bible. Um, 
and he you know reveals himself dramatically to his brothers at the end he could he couldn't hold his tears back any longer and uh you know he invites his family to settle in goshen this part of you know egypt and they do and they're apparently very you know contributory and and, and then it says right the famous verses uh uh the pharaoh who knew joseph died a new pharaoh arose who knew not joseph what happens at that point the pharaoh says to his advisors who are these people they're foreigners and in, in the event of a conflict or a war they might side with our enemies and at that point we have to basically enslave them and then you, they're stuck there until moses comes along exactly and but it's amazing isn't it the pharaoh's first thought upon ascending the throne is these people somehow again in an attempt to make them the other might turn against us what possible reason could he have had to think that when they had already been settled there for generations and made contributions the bible doesn't give us an answer but i've always found that fascinating again it's one of the first marked you know acts of of anti-semitism enshrined as an official policy so as a people you know you're taught this it's a part of your culture it's a part of your religion do you think that your people have a suspicion of government that's different than other people? Like, I, I, I would think that it would be healthy long term. <laughs> you know, I, I think in some sense we're always wary of it. You know, certainly Jewish tradition long teaches, you know, you can't place your trust in any man, right? Put it in God alone. Uh, because the thing is that even the most beneficial people are only transitory. And when one person dies or if there's a coup or something happens, you know, unfortunately, policy can, can flip on a dime and, and persecution can start. And again, in a place where there was persecution, it's now become a place of refuge. Um, so, yeah, I, I, I'm not going to say that I think, you know, OK, could this government eventually something, you know, I'm not thinking about it all the time. But certainly from a historical perspective, yeah, we recognize you, you have to move. You have to be prepared for that eventuality. And I think, by the way, that also goes to why in Judaism, education is so highly prized. Because it's portable. Because it's something that no one can ever take from you. It's something that's transmitted, especially in the household and family, schools. But even in the absence of schools, right? Jews were always known for being literate, for teaching even girls, you know, how, how, how to write, or how to read. You have to be able to read the Torah, the Hebrew Bible. You have to be able to read the prayers. And so that's always formed a you know fundamental part of of, uh, of of Jewish education. And but again, I think it's partly because we recognize anything that's real estate, I mean, quite literally, landed could be taken, could be confiscated, but no one can ever take you know what you have in your mind. Yeah, there is a there's a tension that I like am detecting that you would have to both teach your children to be wary of this you know man's governance without turning them into we are victims and we were always victims, right? Like how do you how do you keep someone alert and not make them feel as though because I know the times in my life when I am the least good, it's when I'm like, oh, I'm the victim of this thing or these things weren't fair. And so the fact that you have this long history of all these things, how do you keep that from being an excuse to not succeed? So that's a very good question. I think some people would say that's just, in, you know, a divine decree that the Jews are going to suffer the brunt of persecution at various times, various ages. But it's all with some sense of the ultimate good, that it's all necessary. You know, Judaism does believe, of course, in a, in a messianic redemption and, and the Messiah. And, and the, really? Yeah. 
Tell me more. <laughs> well, I mean, Judaism holds that, you know, a, again, longstanding Jewish tradition. People diverge on specifics, of course, but there is long been a belief that there will be, you know, the first temple was destroyed, second temple was destroyed, right? The first one in 586 BC by the Babylonians, the second in 70 CE by the Romans. And there's a belief that, according to some people, a third temple will be rebuilt at some point, and it will be heralded by the ingathering of exiles, of the, of the Jewish exiles around the globe. They will return to the land of Israel, and they'll rebuild the temple. And at this point, or before, again, it's a debate, but there will be a Messiah or some type of Messianic age that comes. But, and this is a crucial difference with, with of course, Christianity, is the Messiah is not, you know, is not divine in any way. The Messiah is a political figure king, a descendant of the house of David, but he is still a man. He might be the most learned and, and perhaps, you know, a great prophet like Moses, but, but again, he's still a man who will live and die. If, when you think about like family lineages, right? The, the claim that Jesus makes is he's from the house of David and that's that, that whole line, at least that's what Christians believe. Are lineages tracked so well in the Jewish faith that you believe that you could detect who was a part of David's line in the same way that that the Muslims have, you know, they track their own faith from the from the yeah. prophet? So one, I think it's somewhat easier in, in Islam because it's, you know, relatively later recent, in a sense, religion. I mean, they claim, of course, it's the original faith um, it somehow got corrupted over time and they restored it. But... But, you know, it's only comes about in the early 7th century as opposed to Christianity, right, which is the 1st century and Judaism, which is somewhere in the B.C.s. So it's harder, of course, to maintain unbroken lineage back, back you know, 2,000, 3,000 years. I've heard, I haven't personally seen, but I've heard of some Jews, especially famous families, that could claim a, a uh, ancestry back to some famous rabbis of 1,000 years ago who in turn have a tradition that they, for example, are descended from King David. So in this sense, you do have people living today in the 21st century who could claim descent from, from King David, um, according to their family tree. And I haven't personally seen it, but it's, it's, you know, I've been told it. Well, we've been having a fun uh, exploration of faiths, but you've been actually in a very different context because you went and worked with the international well, I'll let you talk about it. The the work you've done with Yugoslavia and the the international criminal tribunals. How did you get involved with this? What is it? And and what what were you working on? So great question. So again, so I you know I grown up here in St. Louis. Went to school here. I do high school. WashU undergrad. I liked WashU so much. I stayed on for law school. And uh, in law school, I was very much attracted in a sense to the international arena, and. Um, and so, you know, I got involved. Uh, there, there's a place that's still there. I think it's undergone some changes, but it was known as the Whitney R. Harris World Law Institute. And Whitney Harris was one of the um, prosecutors of the Nuremberg trials with Robert Jackson, who was the Supreme Court Justice, while simultaneously serving as the chief American prosecutor uh, there. And, and Whitney only died in 2010 at uh, 97. He was the last living member of Justice Jackson's original team prosecutors. And I... Unfortunately, I never had a chance to meet him. He died before I started law school, but I did meet his widow. And even at the time, I thought it was so cool that we had someone in St. Louis who was directly connected to, you know, one of the most defining moments of the 20th century. And um, so 
you know, and, and I've had a passion for criminal justice issues and criminal procedure. And so I think it was kind of a combination of, you know, love of history. We have a person here, a, a legacy here connected to Nuremberg, and it involves criminal justice and it involves bringing these perpetrators to justice and kind of it kind of, you know, coalesced for me. So anyway, when I was in WashU Law School, so I ended up, um, well, I, I was actually able to do, I was fortunate, uh, a study abroad program uh, my, my, my one summer. And uh, I had a program in, in the Netherlands in Utrecht University. And I did a program on, on uh, a course on, on atrocity crimes and war crimes, crimes against humanity and, and genocide. And then I ended up having a program kind of on comparative law you know, from, from different legal traditions. So, so from common law of England and United States to the European continental to kind of religious traditions, the, again, the Abrahamic faith. And so I've always been fascinated by it. And anyway, um, I th- encountered people when I was in Europe who, who worked at the tribunals. And these tribunals, you know, they really date from Nuremberg. So from post-1945 era, there's the famous or infamous, depending on how you look at it, the International Criminal Court, uh, which which I'm sure people have heard of, but that's only 20 years old, and that's a permanent court that's designed to try these, you know, crimes of genocide and crimes against humanity and war crimes. But the the Nuremberg trial was actually an ad hoc military tribunal established by the victorious allies, right, by Soviet Union, France, Britain, and the U.S. to try these Nazis, and actually in the Far East they did with Japan as well. So oh, I didn't realize that. Not as well known, but it was called the International Military Tribunal for the Far East, the IMTFE. Um, so they did bring at least the highest ranking living, you know, Japanese and, and Nazi, you know, war criminals to justice. Some people say it was a form of victor's justice. You know, there have been criticisms of it. But by and large, again, these are extremely defining moments. And obviously in, 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 in legal history and in world history, I think. And... Um, um, anyway, so I met people who had worked in, in The Hague, not at ICC, but there were these ad hoc tribunals. So this is the one you mentioned, the International Criminal Tribunal for the former Yugoslavia. So as you might know, in the 1990s, there was a massive conflict between these former republics of Yugoslavia, Serbia, Bosnia, Croatia. And, uh, you know, it, it is what many people deem to be a genocide occurred. These countries fought. Bosnia, I think, apparently, you know, took the brunt of many of these attacks, um, and it just evolved into gruesome, you know, ethnic cleansing and internecine fighting. And the most infamous moment occurred at Srebrenica when 8,000 Muslim men and boys were gunned down in, in a mass grave. And um, so, by who? Uh, by Bosnian uh, Serbs, Serbs, and um, and this these are the uh, if I can remember their name, it's been some time. Uh, Miladic and Karadzic, who were leaders of this Bosnian Serb faction, and they gunned them down in a mass grave. And uh, again, that seemed to be an act of genocide. And uh, anyway, I met people who had worked on that tribunal when I when I was doing a study abroad, and I thought, this is amazing work these guys are doing. And is there any chance I could play a role? And I met someone, and he said, you know, if you're ever interested, let me know. I'll see if I can put you in touch with someone. You know, I still would have to apply go through a vetting process, but I could at least, you know, kind of put my hat in the ring. And then the following year, um, I, I didn't expect it to happen so quickly, but uh, WashU Law School at the time, uh, again, I'm not sure if they still have it, but they had a, a fellowship. It's called the Dagan Legomsky 
public interest fellowship. And I ended up applying for it. And I said, you know, if I get this fellowship, I will be able to apply for this position in the Hague. It was a legal internship. Uh, so not like I'm being paid for it, but I'd get experience. And, and this fellowship would help, obviously, offset costs. And so I applied for this internship. And I said, so-and-so told me to reach out to you. I, you know, I, I reached out to him first. One thing led to another. And they finally said, you know, okay, there's an opening if you want to talk with the team. And I said, okay. And it turned out that I was able to go there for three months. And I worked on it. Now, what's interesting is <laughs> I actually, the opening was on one of the defense teams. So I got to see what defending one of these accused actually looked like at the highest levels. And, you know, it's not easy. It's not pretty. What did it look like? Were they saying, no, we didn't do it or no, we weren't responsible? So you get various defenses. It's actually quite interesting. Some people deny it outright. Uh, like uh, Milosevic just was like, it didn't even happen. Right, right, right. There's complete denial. I mean, complete. And you can see the bones. I mean, you can see the evidence. You know, anyone could go and, and see it. And uh, But there are others who say either it, it was it's exaggerated, right, or it's, again, it's not, wasn't my responsibility. I couldn't do anything. There's an attempt to distance yourself from it. Um, for me, it was more not trying to say it didn't happen, but making sure the law is, you know, is, is faithfully applied, meaning there's obviously a ground set of rules everyone agrees upon, and the accused is entitled to a defense. I'm not saying I could do that full time, but, you know, we want to make sure the prosecution is held to a certain bar, to, to proving their case, right, beyond a reasonable doubt. That's how our legal system works. And I got to see the evidence the prosecution had, and I went through the trial decision, the trial court decision below, you know, it was 2,000 pages or something. And I had to say, okay, here's previous cases that set precedent, right? Set the law. Did this trial court actually apply the law faithfully? And, you know, I, I worked on the appeal uh, with this team for three months. And it was quite, you know, it's, a, it's exhausting work. I mean, going through papers. But I felt I was doing, in a sense, a service because I'm getting experience. And I, I want the prosecution, you know, to prove their case. Meaning, what a powerful, powerful concept. Oh, it was, it was. And what I mean is, of course, if the person's innocent, I don't want them. But you examine the evidence, you see where it leads. If the person guilty and the prosecution can prove it, justice is served. But on the other hand, if, if the prosecution can't prove it, if there's not evidence, you know, I, I'm a firm believer in, in that maxim that it's better to let, you know, 10 guilty people go free than to have an innocent person convicted. Because unfortunately, that, that happens too. And, and it's important we recognize. I agree. And if you don't have that, then the ability to become a mob that that has like thirst for blood because they believe that this is the way they will feel justice has been served is so easy. So so having a, a pure um, attempt, like a real attempt to defend people, even if you think like, wow, it's obvious they did it, but like right. making sure that you're not um, overstepping because- to put an innocent man to death is uh, or right. horrible. And, and and not only that, you know, it's interesting. It, and, and it's in a sense, it's shocking looking back on it. But even at the Nuremberg trials, I find fascinating that when the allies were discussing what to do with the defeated, you know, Nazi leaders, Churchill is the is one who agreed or, or suggested that we just machine gun. There's no need for a trial because it's guilty. Everyone knows they're guilty. Why go through this long, arduous process? And it was the uh, Americans. It was Harry S. Truman, <laughs> our, our, 
are, you know, from uh, from Missouri, from from the Show Me State, who said, we need to leave a record. We need to prosecute them, afford them every defense, right, that any accused would get, because we don't, and Justice Jackson was very, I think, prominent in this regard, too, as the prosecutor. We don't want future generations to wonder what would they have said in their own defense. They had every opportunity to present. They could cross-examine. They saw the evidence. And now we have a lasting legacy. And was it a 100% conviction rate in your No, part? it wasn't. There, there, were, there were some acquittals, which also proves it wasn't just Victor's justice. An actual few acquittals. Others were, um, the sentences were commuted. There were 10, uh, I believe 10 who were hanged, um, you know, at the conclusion. But uh, it wasn't a pure conviction, right? It was, you know, decided in accordance with their responsibility, culpability. And And the story is so important, like that historical memory. I I was just this morning listening to a guy that uh, went to the Canadian trucker convoy and he recorded people talking about their experiences. And he had one set of tape that he had never released. He hadn't gone back and listened to it. And now it's one year past. And regardless of where you stand on the on the whole trucker convoy, was it right. good or bad? The the idea that like, hey, we don't want to forget why we were there. We don't want anybody that's more powerful with their media to be able to describe it in a way that they want that that maybe wasn't the way we saw it. But if you don't have a way to pass that story down, kind of like the the Seder the, with the the story of the Passover, like you were talking about then you are inevitably going to repeat those decisions because humans don't change over time. The only thing that changes is the stories that they tell themselves about who they could be uh, if they're not careful. Yeah, no, I would completely agree with that. That's, you you know, and that's, again, Nuremberg's, you know, almost uh, 80 years ago now. But, and by the way, I, I must add, you know, there's one last living Nuremberg prosecutor who's turning 103 next month. Uh, Benjamin Friends, he was just awarded the Congressional Medal of Honor. So, so you know, uh, hats off. Hats so, off, yeah, well, 103. Um, yep. Um, and he, he still he still talks, as far as more on his experiences. Um, but he served with General Patton, by the way. Invaded, is uh, one of the, the, the troopers who landed, I think, at Normandy. And Well, coincidentally, right before you call, right before you came, I was actually speaking with my mentor, who's 103, and uh, dropped in on D-Day. and and, uh, amazing. So there are only a few of those people left. Yeah. And he's, you know, that they're still alive is truly amazing. Right, exactly. And that's the importance of, I think it also goes back to, you know, preserving memory and narrative and, you know, whose story is being told, whose narrative is being shared. It's amazing that, you know, humans can look at the same event and come away with completely different you know, interpretations and meanings. And- oh, I have that. So um, I do these things called legacy interviews. So yeah. um, when I'm normally in this space, I'm recording people's family stories. And um, one of the experiences is that people walk in and I ask them, what do you see in that painting right there? And you would think like you're looking at that and you're like, well, they would see exactly what I see. But I've asked 80 or so people, what have you seen when you look at that? And I have never, not even one time gotten the same answer. And so you think about that and you say, like, this is powerful, right? Because everyone comes at their their thing. They're looking at literally the exact same thing and what they take away, what they notice, what they remember, all different. And when you think about something complicated, like people fighting one another, people shooting at one another, all this chaos going on, grabbing those stories and being able to tell them from all these different angles is the only way you'll come out with some amalgamation of the truth because the the real truth we will never actually know. Right. And I think that's also, 
it's interesting. That's one of the legacies even of, of Nuremberg and even of these other tribunals, you know, so the, the International Criminal Tribunal for the former Yugoslavia closed. It, it, it wrapped up its work, you know, in uh, I think 2017 or 2018 after about 25 years. It's done. It's a part of history. But, you know, there's still people who have different narratives about what happened, who's responsible. And, and even whence does the moment of responsibility start? How far back in time are we going? You know, what I did to you or, or you know, as a response to what your people did to my people hundreds of years ago. This is an important conversation because it's happening in our culture now, right? Where people are saying, um, hey, I, I think that my, I, you know, maybe my family was descended from slaves and we have this burden that we've carried around for the, all these years. Therefore, you people in the modern age, we should, you know, rectify that. It's so difficult for me to say, no, there's absolutely no validity to that. Right. Because, like, maybe you are enduring incredible pains and your family had to suffer through things. But at the same time, like, guilt over time is the type of thing that your your people dealt with, right? Where yeah. they're being accused of killing Jesus, you know, thousands of years ago. So how do you, how do humans get through this, this really difficult, muddy, complex time? It's a struggle for sure. Uh, there aren't there aren't uh, any easy answers. At least, uh, I mean, I, I actually ask myself that question a lot. I mean, perhaps we compartmentalize in a sense, and you know, you you go through the rituals, you tell the stories. It's important to preserve it. At the same time, you know, you're just living your everyday life as well, and and you know, I, I don't always think about this. <laughs> Uh, as uh, you know, as hard as that might seem to uh, to think, but you know, I, I try to give myself a break at times from thinking about these things because I mean, I can't always think of of the bad things too. You know, one thing I, I really like to promote too is the incredible good things that happened. You know, we should focus on the positive. It's not excluding the bad, but but history and especially you know Jewish history, there's a tendency to consider it really just a story of tears you know, a valley of tears, I think one, one scholar called it. And it's true. Unfortunately, there's been a lot of persecution, but there have been extraordinary moments of triumph. You mentioned earlier, Vance, about the golden age, Spain, between Jews, Christians, and Muslims living in relative harmony with each other. That lasted for about 200 years. In some sense, I think that's a precursor and to, to maybe what's happening between Israel and Arab nations with the Abraham Accords. In fact, it's called Abraham to signify that, that unity of, of the, you know, we're all descended from Abraham. And uh, I, I think um, we have to promote the goodness and these, these, these stories too. You know, there's, there's a book that, and you might be familiar, and it kind of it ties into what we're talking about, you know, in the Holocaust, and of course in every genocide, and tra tragically there are so many genocides. But in the Holocaust especially, uh, people might be familiar with, you know, there's a concept of righteous among the nations. These are righteous non-Jews mostly Christians, some Muslims, who saved Jews from persecution. And, you know, Yad Vashem, Israel's Holocaust Memorial, has designated about 27,000 people as so-called righteous among the nations, that meaning they risked their own lives, or positions, money, etc., to save Jews. Could be family, it could be up to, is one Portuguese consul in, uh, in Bordeaux in France, Aristides de Souza, many saved about 30,000 people, it's estimated, Jews and non-Jews. Including the you know the artist Salvador Dali, and the and the, the authors of the and the authors of Curious George, they actually brought the manuscript with them when they fled uh, 
you know, to the to the to the uh, Western Hemisphere. I mean, those stories deserve to be told equally, you know. And and as as, as this author um, he says, you know, it's such a it's a tragedy and it's a disservice to know the names, you know, of Hitler and Goering and Himmler and not know the names of, you know, Sousa Mendes or, you know, um, Princess Alice of Greece, Prince Philip's mother. So King Charles's grandmother who's, who saved the Jewish family in the, in the Royal Palace in Athens, right across the street from the Gestapo. I mean, their names deserve to be remembered. Yeah, and, and so important because it's one thing to say, avoid becoming this villain. But if you don't have something to go towards, if you don't have some sort of hero to, to emulate and to say, hey, these other people at other times in their lives risk something, then it's very easy to be like, ah, nobody I've ever heard of risk things. I, I you know, my right. people don't do this. But if you have heroes, if you know the names of those heroes, if you know what they risked, then all of a sudden the the narrative going on in your mind when it comes time to do something important but difficult yeah. is different you know it's one of the missions i i don't i don't work at the holocaust museum here but one of the missions is you know to emphasize the importance of of of, of not only tolerance but you know um acceptance inclusivity seeing seeing the the divine in each other right we're all created in the image of god in, in that sense we're all equal and and i think that that's really important to inculcate. And, you know, it's not okay to just be a bystander when these things happen. You know, Elie Wiesel, the famous Holocaust survivor, had a quote that neutrality, you know, only benefits the oppressor. It never helps the oppressed. And people think they're good, decent human beings. And yet, if they do nothing, also as Edmund Burke, it's attributed to him, right? Only thing necessary for the triumph of evil is for good people to do nothing. That's all it takes. So we must always make a conscious, strenuous effort to try to fight, you know, for good and to stand up. And and, and the story, and, and if I could just uh, yeah. just add that the story of these righteous, and they're truly righteous, you know, it shows that even in those darkest days of human depravity, there were people who could stand up to the Nazis. I mean, my God, the, the Nazis. And, and, and they lived to tell the tale. Well, I think about, you know, how... Um, intoxicating the kind the idea of righteousness is right yeah. because if you go and look at any of these genocides that are going on as people were being swept up into the mob they didn't think oh I'm going to do something and I'm going to try and get away with it they thought somebody is telling me that this is obviously good and that this is what I should do to participate or this is and so you can see how people could get swept up believing that they're they're right probably having a voice in the back of their mind saying something's not right here, but, but being swept up by that concept of the mob. So yeah. righteousness requires deep thought and really understanding what's going on. Because in this age of propaganda, you could be propagandized into believing all kinds of things are righteous and that we need to go stamp out this evil. But that's how you, that's how people get engaged and participate in genocides to begin with. Absolutely. And, you know, it starts, it really starts with dehumanization. And you look across um, history, really just the 20th century, and, and, and the, the victims are always labeled as cockroaches, as rats, as something worthy of extermination. And, uh, uh, you know, the Holocaust or any genocide never happens 
in a vacuum. These are their warning stages. But it, again, it really begins, I think, at, at these moments of how we label each other, how we look at each other. And actually, you know, they did a study of some of these righteous among the nations. And I thought it was fascinating that one of apparently the core, one of the core um, commonalities between these people is they were raised in a loving home. They were disciplined, but they were always given a reason why they were disciplined. It was explained to them. Their parents or our support system I mean, gave them support. And they, uh, again, saw each other as equal. They had a very open household of people of different faiths. And also they thought for themselves. They what? They thought for themselves. Oh. They had a very strong conscience. So even amidst a maelstrom of getting swept up in destruction, this is not right. I have to do something about it. This is the thing that's important to teach people, right? The, the like, what is it that it takes to be the type of person that stands up? Because, you know, when I read books about um, World War II, the people that got engaged with the Nazis, they were ordinary people, right? Yeah, they were, that's right. They were policemen that, that uh, for five, ten years before that were just walking a beat. They were firemen that ended up somehow, somewhere down the line, mass executing, you know, children and women and like, but they exactly. started off as just regular people. You know, one of one of a, a book that really sheds light on that is called the. Um, I, I think it's it may, maybe this is what you're referring to, but there's this like Police Battalion 101, the final solution in occupied Poland, and and this guy goes through and he says some of these some of the members of 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 these people, as you said, who are mass gunning women and children in graves in the former Soviet Union. I mean, they were teachers, they were doctors, they were firemen. Ordinary people. Maybe that's the horror of it all. They're not monsters. They're us. And I think that the way that it works is that you start off doing something small that that inner voice tells you like, nah, I probably shouldn't do this. But you take that one step and then you take the next one. And the whole time you're like pushing that thought into the back of your mind until, you know, you find yourself in this situation where you're doing something horrific. And now you can't listen to that voice. Because to listen to right. that voice means you'd have to condemn yourself and then becomes very, very difficult. Yeah, exactly. I mean, there are moments when if if enough people were to rise up or say, this is not right, we won't be a part of this, you know. You'd stop it much faster. Exactly. When, when it was much easier to stop it before the, exactly. the thing gets going. Yeah, 100%. I mean, if you wait too long, it's over. It's, it's not possible to put it back in the bottle. So you mentioned uh, the Holocaust Museum here in St. Louis. Why does St. Louis, Missouri, in the middle of the United States, why do they need a Holocaust museum? So, again, I, I, I don't work there, but I can tell you that the Holocaust Museum has been around since the 90s. And it was actually started by Holocaust survivors in the region who wanted their stories to be remembered, to be told. And I think it could serve, again, as an effective warning sign. Again, the idea that these are human beings stories with fears hopes the same as anyone else they came to the united states you know as a land of refuge a land of promise and um but the thing is the holocaust is a story for all of humanity again it's genocide art not just the jewish story it's a story that you know again you need good people of all faiths and backgrounds to stand up to step up as, as you're talking to the righteous among the nations so st louis actually plays a very critical role because the idea is you want you know, again, everyone to experience and talking about, you know, coming from rural areas, suburban areas, urban areas, it, it crisscrosses every, I think, conceivable demographic. 
in, in this country. So St. Louis actually being, you know, a hub of the Midwest and really at the center, I, I think, of the United States so geographically, it really draws, it draws tens of thousands of, of people, especially students coming from schools as play, in places from rural parts, as you said, they may never have met a Jewish person. It's kind of break down the barriers to show they're just ordinary human beings who, who think differently. And, uh, you know, the Holocaust Museum did undergo a recent renovation and the idea is to do more programming and to have more up-to-date technology. I think one of the coolest things that's happening, you might be aware of, is using AI now to, to record, you know, people's testimonies. And it will live on in a 3D format for generations to come. You know, unfortunately, we're arriving at a point where so many of these testimonies of World War II vets and Holocaust survivors are just, they're going. You know, they're departing us. And, you know, who tells their stories? And, yes, you know, you could have children or grandchildren or people who care about it. But, I mean, imagine having these people live on in some sense and telling their stories themselves. It's incredibly powerful. Those stories are so important. Not long ago, I had a person in here. They were sitting across the chair from me and they were like, I, I don't know what the point is. My children bought this for me, this legacy interview. I, you know, I view my life as like um, the bridge over the River Kwai, you know, like eventually that that bridge is just going to get blown up. And so what does it matter? And the only thought that I had for him was, yes, the bridge doesn't remain. But what does remain is the story. And the fact that you and I can talk about something and we both know what you mean because we both know that story. And that's why telling these stories are so important because the mantra of the Alamo, never forget, or, or of the Holocaust museums where, you know, I uh, hear the Jewish people saying, you know, never forget right. because it's hard to imagine. But I used to work for Monsanto, right? So I have this experience where people think Monsanto is actually evil. And I would go out and stand on stages and there'd be an entire room full of people that would be like, Monsanto is evil. If I go to a college campus now and I ask that room, how many of you hate Monsanto? There might be three hands out of 100 that go up because they forgot it like that. And so you think about these things like the Holocaust or the Alamo finding a way to perpetuate those stories way beyond when they happened is not an easy thing. And it does require actual real investment, people pushing that forward because it's natural to forget, not natural to remember. Exactly. And I, and I think it's, I really like your, your analogy to the bridge over the river Kwai, which was a great film by the way. Um, but we still talk about it. And again, the bridge is long gone. Uh, but but the story remains, and I think that's the most important thing. Now maybe the story will be reinterpreted, you know, in, in coming generations or decades, centuries. But there's something I, I like to think of it as like an echo that that remains, that endures. And you know, you never know that your story might down the line, even after you're physically not here, it might benefit other people. You know, um, it's 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 something I do think about. I think about my own grandparents, you know, who, who've, who've all passed, but. You know, their stories were so formative to me growing up. I mean, they actually, they, they various times lived with us in the house. So I grew up with them in the household for about 25 years. There was one grandparent who lived there at least. Um, you know, that's, just, that's an experience that can't be replicated, of course. And, you know, I, I tried to talk to them so many times about childhood and upbringing and their parents. And I thought I asked a lot of questions. And, and yet now that they've gone, I, I feel there's many I never asked. And sometimes even simple ones, um, you know, what's something interesting or moving that, you know, your grandparent told you or I, 
you know, or what were they like? You know, I, I regret I didn't I didn't uh, think at the time to ask them. I think that's I have such a unique position sitting in this chair right here doing these interviews because oftentimes the things that a parent or a grandparent wants to tell doesn't have the context to be like, come here, seven year old. Let me tell you about, you know, when we lost two of our children to to drowning in a pond. And yeah. it was so horrific and so hard that, you know, we just never talked about it. But this this is something you need to know. And and or, you know, positive things or things that um, explain the way that your family was, but that doesn't feel very good to tell. But if you don't tell that story, then the child that's facing alcoholism now, right? The child yeah. that is facing the vices that that took down granddad, they got to face that on their own. Whereas if the stories get passed down, you actually, you can make wisdom move. And then that wisdom doesn't have to be learned a second time. And the families can build on that. And, and I, I think it also strengthens families. It, it fortifies and it, it makes us think of ourselves as part of an intergenerational story, which we really are, but we, we think in terms of that way. And that's, I think, also a family, having a supportive family, loving family, friends, mentors, I think is so important because it's the wisdom, as you said, that can pass on through generations. I, 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 I once, um, I think someone, someone said, and, and, and I really agree with this idea that we're merely custodians in a sense of the stories, you know, for just a few generations. I like to say that. I mean, that's all we are, right? We're just temporary repositories ourselves. Our I think that's right. I think that's right. And there's some amount of fidelity that living and experiencing life and being able to tell that story properly, because it's one thing to be told the story as a child and repeat it. But when you're, I'm like, I'm teaching my daughter Bible stories, like, and she's the one that prompted it. She was literally out of nowhere was like, yeah. tell me about God, daddy. And I was like, well, I know a lot of Bible stories and they're not things that, I, but you, you, uh, you think about a Bible story that you learned as a little kid and you're like, oh, I, I know this story of Moses or, oh, I know right. this story of, of where Adam and Eve came from. But then because you've lived, because I've lived for 40 years, when I go to tell that story to my daughter now, it's different. It's the maybe the exact same words, but to me, I'm like, oh my God, that would have been so hard to have done that. Or that's what this means, you know, understanding that the Garden of Eden is a metaphor for childhood is something as a child, you couldn't understand that. But as a parent being like, I'm going to teach yeah. you to name all the animals and protect you from, from the outside world. And there is a knowledge of good and evil. And I want you to not eat it for as long yeah. as possible. It's amazing to be that, um, you receive the stories, and then when you go to tell them, you get something else out of them. Oh, that's I would agree with that. You know, it's it's forever refracting the world through our own experiences, which is again why no one interprets that painting the same way. And I think also for the Garden of Eden, if I just might add too, it's, it symbolizes loss of innocence, and I think it's really fascinating too. What's the punishment, in a sense, given to Adam and Eve? I mean, it's death. Their banishment. Right, They're not allowed the to go back. But why doesn't God destroy the Garden of Eden itself? Why does he just banish them and make it unable for them to return? a good question. I think the answer is, is because it's the lived experience that makes it impossible for us to return to that state of innocence. That's exactly right. And the, and the angel with the flaming sword right. is saying, like, once you leave, there's no coming back. And the closest you can get 
is to be a father that puts his children in there and you get to watch the children walk around knowing that one day they will bite from that apple and and be forced yeah. to leave. Yeah, no, I, absolutely. I, I agree with that. But yeah, the, the metaphors are really interesting and, and, and they still teach us. And I think actually, regardless of how a person interprets it's passages in the Bible elsewhere, I mean, how do you take it? It all has meanings. Before we get started, we were talking about art, you and I, before the cameras got going, and you yeah. brought up about the Renaissance, and we were talking about sitting there and looking at some painting from th this era having having gripped you. What paintings through all your travels throughout the world have really grabbed you and, and held you? Well, I what I was saying is that, you know, some of these great Renaissance masters, uh, again, Michelangelo, Raphael, uh, uh, Da Vinci, of course, so their paintings are still really renowned, or sculptures actually, are still are you know revered to this day. So I had the privilege, for example, of seeing the Mona Lisa in, in person at the Louvre in Paris. I got to tell you, in a way, it's 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 like okay, amazing to see it, and again, this is painted over 500 years ago. Like wow, it's here. But in a sense, I have to admit, it was a little <laughs> underwhelming because it's a lot smaller than you might think. But on the other hand, just you know the expression, the, the way that Da Vinci did it, and it just, it gripped me because it's also, I think when people see paintings, it's a way to kind of enter the artist world. And so, um, so I think the Mona Lisa is very cool to see. Um, I will say actually in the Louvre though, outside of even their paintings, are you familiar with the Code of Hammurabi? I, I know of it. Yeah. I mean, so it's like our first le really legal code. It's really harsh, right? Eye right, for an eye. Correct. Kind of, it's, yes. It's okay. Very much is that, that it's a, what we would call the Lex Talionis, the eye for an eye, but What's interesting is, I mean, to actually see it, that it survived until this day and it's in the Louvre. I mean, to, you know, you go up to me, again, being a lawyer, having the background, but for me, that was like stunning to see this in a sense is the origin, you know, of our, of our legal uh, systems. And in some sense, I mean, it's, it goes back to this and it's, you know, from 17 or 1800 BCE. I mean, you know, to have that old. level of timelessness is something that's so hard to wrap your mind around. And, and like, what must that person that were, was able to paint that thing, what must they have gone through to be able to not just like imagine an idea that's timeless, but create it and put it in some level of permanence and then have human beings, just like the memories and the stories being told, be passed down so that painting didn't just get shoved up in the attic and torn up and thrown yeah. out. Well, you know, some of it's actually just uncovered, you know, through excavations work we, we you know sometimes there are things that we thought maybe were forgotten you, you know or just vanished to history and they're recovered you know this happened a lot by the way to ancient you know greece and rome why is it called renaissance because it's a rebirth of classical greek and roman learning it was a rediscovery of what many of them had already said that, <laughs> that's actually mind-blowing it's never yeah. crossed my mind that in order to have a renaissance you have to have been there before exactly exactly i mean there there's a greek philosopher or astronomer i i you know i blank on his name but but he had already proposed in you know the fourth or third century bc that the earth you know rotates around the, the, the sun and the stars are other suns so it's mind-blowing to think you know in the 1500s people were coming up with this but the ancients that already deduced, you know, some of these findings earlier, and they were just, you know, lost. They were suppressed and just lost, you know, to history. Yeah, and how much of modern day is just rediscovering what the Greeks knew, and then yeah. the Romans reinterpreted, and then we somehow got, you know, we're 
people reading Marcus Aurelius, right? Like we're rediscovering this thing about how to control your own vices and your own problems. And likely he was not the first to think those thoughts. I'm sure he wasn't. And again, I think it goes to the importance of really learning history. And I, and I, I think, you know, the humanities, I, I, you know, granted, look, we're in the 21st century. STEM is very important. Knowing technology, you know, grappling with it. What's it going to be like in 10 years, 20 years, 50 years, whatever. But same time, where do we anchor ourselves in the story of humanity? I think that's very important to know because, again, our ancestors faced similar questions, moral quandaries. We're not the first generation to go through it. We certainly won't be the last. Technology might change, but the basic idea remains the same. And and so I think, again, grant, grounded in humanities and, you know, one, it allows you to kind of enjoy life. I mean, I'm not saying <laughs> science and engineering do, but there's, you know, that creative aspect to it, the books and paintings and music, you know, and, and, and that's so important, I think, to know, because it's also a form of our, again, cultural expression. That's likely, in a sense, to live on, too. These things have lasted hundreds of years. And, you know, interestingly, too, you know, even in, in um, the, the, the space program, the Voyager spacecraft, right, they, they actually recorded sounds of Earth, nature, animals, some of the famous people of the time. That's only 45 years ago. It's meant to last, you know, and endure for thousands. Yeah, the, one of the only songs they put on there was um, of a man from deep in Appalachia, and he doesn't use any words at all. He's just using these intonations. But if you go hear that, you think this could have been 10,000 years ago. There's no difference between, you know, that man making that kind of guttural sounds and to think it'll probably make sense 10,000 years from now. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I tend to think that time, in a sense, is maybe not as linear as we think. It's just a return. You know, it's a cyclical event in some sense. Because, again, we're all we're rediscovering things that people knew. Well, and in effect, we're just revolving around that sun. That's all we have. <laughs> well, Isaac, this has been one of the best conversations I have ever had on this podcast. I have absolutely loved this. If people wanted to find out more about what you do or things that that uh, we've spoke about today, where where would you direct them to go? Well, I'd say right now, probably the best way is on my LinkedIn, which is just my, my name and you'll find me. Um, also, I'd recommend if anyone's interested in the, in the Jewish history, Sephardic history, the, the nonprofit that I work with, cultural and historical nonprofit that also puts on monthly webinars on these topics that um, is called Jewish Heritage Alliance. So that's just jewishheritagealliance.com. There's a YouTube channel with previous recordings, but there's a number of initiatives, and um, including, including an exhibit that visually depicts the story of Sephiroth that, uh, you know, I'm, I'm very much hoping will actually be here in St. Louis at the uh, St. Louis JCC in the very near future. Um, so I think those are the best two ways uh, to be in touch. But uh, if you just type me, you'll, you'll, you'll find me. Yeah, I, I'm, I have no doubt if you'll come back on, I'll have you on. This was fascinating and we could have gone on for many, many more sure. hours. Sure, I'd love to come back. All right. Thanks, man. Thank you.